And good morning here from 2XX, your community radio and the Fuzzy Logic Science Show. Now, we have an interesting program lined up for you today because we're going to be talking about growth. And what does growth mean? It's such a positive go-get-em type of word. You can grow your garden, you can grow your personality, you can grow your friendships, you can grow your bank balance, you can grow your economy and you can grow your population. But where does that end? What does that lead to? Can we have such a thing as infinite growth on a finite planet? Well, joining me in the studio, I'd like to welcome uh, Jonathan Miller. Good morning, Jonathan. Hi, Rod. Now, Jonathan is from Steady State ACT. And Jonathan and I are both members of Sustainable Population Australia and Fuzzy Logic regular stalwart for, oh, crikey, how many years now, Amon? 24 years now, Rod. 24 uh, years. I, I'm a little bit astonished they've actually been around this long, so. <laughs> oh, there you go, a, a, an institution. So now, uh, Jonathan, the growth and uh, the steady state economy, the limits to growth, what kind of led you into thinking about these things? Right, well, my background is working to protect biodiversity and uh, in the area of nature conservation, and I have a degree in ecology. I worked in this area within non-government organisations and within government for 30, 40 years. But I came to a realisation that so long as we were only dealing with the symptoms of the problem, which were land clearing, um, and a range of other things which destroy biodiversity, uh, rather than dealing with the drivers, which is the system, which is the way that our, our economy and our society organise, then any victories, any saving of biodiversity would be very short-lived. Uh, so I began to understand the importance of concepts such as limits to growth, to understanding why... Um, Biodiversity is constantly under threat. Well, what, what are some of the effects of growth that we're seeing? So, look, it's really interesting um, that there's been a, a major focus on the State of Environment report uh, a few months ago, but some of the key messages actually haven't been picked up. The 2016 State of the Environment report made clear that economic activity and population are actually two of the major drivers of environmental change in Australia. So um, that's, there's that piece there. Uh, but also in um, the current state of environment, the one that came out and was released a couple of months ago, there were some quite chilling statements, uh, which uh, eco ecological scientists tend to be extremely sober, cautiously uh, worded people. But they made the point, first of all, uh, which I, I guess should be obvious to us, is that our very well-being as humans is dependent on having a healthy environment. And Indigenous societies have known that forever. But the second thing which I thought... Uh, would bring people up short was a statement that said that on our current path we are heading towards societal collapse which is quite an extraordinary thing for a government document to say and this was a message that really chimed with what limits to growth was saying 50 years ago i argue the most important book of the last century 
whose message was either misconstrued or deliberately uh, misrepresented, but its message is critical to understanding a, a sustainable path forward. Is there a, a fundamental misunderstanding, you think, that we talk about everything derives from the economy, the economy is central to our well-being, and uh, things like the environment are kind of almost incidental? Yeah, look, I think um, that relates a little bit to the dominant uh, idea within our society which um, is really neoclassical economics that um, defines the way that political discourse media discussion of almost every political issue is discussed and neoclassical economics while it does some, some things well relates quite poorly to the physical environment and the natural environment uh, so what uh, alternative ways of thinking about the economy are there? Well, I, I guess it's not so much the economy as an understanding that an economy really is about society. What are the things that are important to our society? And within that context, having an understanding of the critical importance of our relationship to the physical and natural environment. Um, so I guess in my view, I'd far rather that scientists who can bring that understanding to our political um, discourse, our political management, have a far greater influence. But that's not the way our society operates at the moment. Yes, I, I learned recently in uh, preparing a book that was published recently that there's a difference between what is called environmental economics and ecological mm. economics uh, do you want to talk about that? Yeah, so environmental economics is really how mainstream economics brings the environment into its consideration. So to simplify it significantly, it talks about putting a value on the environment and then these things are done within a classical market framework. Ecological economics throws the whole ball in the air and says, look, we need to start from an understanding of the fundamental significance of the natural environment to uh, our welfare, our well-being as human beings, and then build it up from there. And it takes a far greater account of the physical limitations of our planet in terms of the way that our economy and our society can operate. Now, it, it's interesting the way that the... Uh, conversation has been changed or uh, influenced by the left versus right political divide that if you are seen as being pro-environment then you're left wing and if you're uh, not then you're right wing and do, do you think that's been a mistake by the environment movement that the thing that environmental concerns have been bundled up with other so-called left wing issues yeah look um I think that is problematic. Whether it's necessarily one, the environment movement's fault is another matter. I mean, the reality is that I grew up in Victoria and some of the best environmental policies were actually developed by Liberal governments in terms of soil conservation, for example, in the northwestern Victorian Mallee. Um, unfortunately, I think this is probably a consequence of neoliberalism over the last 40, 50 years. And... In that situation, environmental conservation becomes fairly inimical 
to the overall view where economic growth and the privatisation of capital and resources are paramount. In that situation, uh, environmental understanding finds it very hard to get a look in, which means that environmental issues tend to be marginalised towards one side, and I guess it has been towards the left. Well, if we want to flip that same conversation around the other way, do you think that uh, you might say people who are concerned about the environment are, are prone to ignoring economic realities that if you have a solution that is environmentally sound but it's not economically sound then it's not a solution do you think that's true um well i guess it depends on the particular thing the particular issue you throw up but uh, whereas in the past we've thought of three realms of sustainability, economic, social and environmental, as being interlocking, a far more important model recognises that the economic is dependent on the social and the social is also dependent on the environmental. So we have nested view of what is sustainability uh, and I think that's critical and, and ultimately if we're going to solve the rather... Um, enormous issues facing humanity. We need to move to that sort of understanding if we're to solve the problems. Yes, I'm reminded of the Brixton riots that occurred in uh, Thatcher's Great Britain in... Uh... It was 1986. Oh, OK, Amon, do you, you remember that story? Do you want to just tell me what you recall of that? Um, well, just from what I can uh, basically remember, I mean... Um... Um, uh, there are apparently huge economic uh, challenges at the time, I mean, and I think that really came uh, to the fore with uh, the poll tax rights. And I believe that was in uh, the early 1990s. But by 1990, Margaret Thatcher had left uh, the office of Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. But, but the Brixton rights, I mean, um, I think there were certain quite a few altercations, I think, with uh, local police at the time. So it was... I think it was actually a combination of factors. I mean, there was a lot of economic disadvantage. Uh, there are a lot of pressures uh, just seeking an outlet. And ultimately, that did manifest itself within uh, the Brixton rights. Um, uh, I, I did some research, well, many years ago now. But when I think about some of the initiatives taken from that, um, that actually has, well, taken some... Um, well, I, I brought some developments to the fore, um, but looking at uh, certain other discussions over time, it seems some of those issues have become diminished uh, over that time. Um, and of course, obviously, I, 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 I really do hope that it, it doesn't take violence, uh, but a lot, certainly a lot of activism to kind of regain that initiative that actually helped uh, address a lot of disadvantage that people were experiencing yeah. at the time. I think that's a really instructive story there, Amon, because it, what, what we're saying here is that, as uh, Jonathan has just reminded us, that uh, a sustainable future is not just the economy and it's not just the environment, it's the social aspects. So Margaret Thatcher famously said, there is no such thing as a society. There are only people, individuals making decisions. And I thought, well, you flip that around, uh, Margaret, and what if you said there is no such thing as the economy? There are only individual consumers and businesses making decisions. But what happened in Brixton reflects what happens when you ignore the social factors. So there is such a thing as society, and if you're 
economy undermines the health of that society, then that is not a sustainable society, nor is it a sustainable economy. Did you have any want to add anything to that, uh, Jonathan? Yeah, look, uh, I come from an ecological background, but uh, in terms of the, the key thinkers uh, on what a sustainable economy looks like, they all bring together both an understanding of needing to live within ecological limits, but also a sense that this is not going to perpetuate unless there's social justice, unless there's an equitable distribution of resources. So this is the these are ideas central to degrowth, to, say, Kate Rayworth's uh, donut economics, and very much to the steady-state economics model as well. All right, well, we might uh, go to a song break, and here on Fuzzy Logic, we're talking to Jonathan Miller from Steady State ACT, with Fuzzy Logic regular Amon Lindsay. Glad to have you with us here today, Amon. And one of the things that gets discussed a lot in this field is the uh, the role of the circular economy. Now, I think it's... Uh, well, there's a, there's a lot in that, but uh, do you want to give your description of what the circular economy looks like, Jonathan? So my understanding of what circular economy proponents would would see uh, a circular economy as is uh, an era, is an economy in which uh, resources are used at maintained at the highest level of use for as long as possible. So, for argument's sake, you would continue to use uh, glass you and metals and re continue to use them uh, at that highest purpose um, rather than, uh, for example... Um, using, it, taking them towards a secondary use, which ultimately is a final use. Um, so the point here is to minimise the demands on the natural environment in terms of extraction of new resources. Another part of the circular economy is to uh, to regenerate nature as much as possible as well. So and my, that's my understanding of some of the key uh, components of a circular economy. And uh, I think that notion of uh, using our natural resources as efficiently and productively as possible is an element of all the other um, sustainable economy models, including uh, the circular state economy, but it tends not to, to comprise all of the elements of those other sustainable economy models. Well, uh, the, I would categorise our current economy is the, as being the DUD economy, and that's an acronym, D-U-D. You dig something up, you use it, and then you dig a hole and you bury it again. Or maybe the more common uh, expression is the linear economy use. And would you say that it's a product largely of the fact that we've had abundant resources? So iron ore has been easy to get, oil has been really, really easy to get, and there hasn't been a really strong economic motivation to uh, move to a circular economy. Yeah, so, so part of this is an economic driver. I mean, my understanding is that we're not actually likely to run out of most minerals. The question is, the, the problem is slightly different, and that is we are, have used the most easily mined 
uh, resources. So what you are left with are lower-grade resources which become increasingly expensive to extract. So that puts um, further costs into the economy. Now, sometimes you can substitute from one mineral to another, but obviously there's only so many minerals you can substitute through in a um, 92-element periodic tables. So there are limitations to this um, in terms of how far you can go. The other, I mean, some of the other challenges with a circular economy are that there's only some so far that you can um, renewably uh, recycle uh, minerals so that, for example, there tends to be some loss of resource with each cycle of recycling as well as the fact that some minerals can, or some metals and other resources can only be recycled a certain number of times. So these are some of the problems. And a further problem, more fundamental problem with the circular economy, or, not a fu- or a shortcoming, I guess, is it doesn't recognise that if you have an expanding economy in physical terms, which is what we definitely have at the moment, even with optimal recycling of resources, you still need to bring in new resources to create the new stock to fill a, an ever-expanding amount of physical assets. So as the, as the economy grows, as, well, as population grows, and we should talk about population briefly as well, uh, so you need to feed more into the machine for that? Yeah, so I have some figures here from actually from Jason Hickel, um, and he found that in the last 40 years, the size of the global physical economy has more than doubled. So that is means the amount of infrastructure, the amount of goods and uh, physical goods that we have uh, have gone from something like 35 billion tonnes in 1980 to something like 92 billion tonnes uh, in 2017. And there's no real safe level, but some rule of thumbs safe levels would have us at 25 to 50 billion tonnes in the global economy. And so we are way beyond that and we're accelerating further. So that's a really, really significant point, isn't it? And so what we're saying is that even if a perfectly uh, efficient circular economy was possible, it wouldn't be enough to cover the growth that mm. we are now uh, experiencing. Yeah. And, in fact, I've heard the term the great acceleration, which mm. relates to human impact on the planet since around uh, 1950 or thereabouts. So w- one of the challenges of the uh, so-called circular economy, and I've got in my hand my phone here, so this has got a whole bunch of resources in it. There's lots of exotic rare metals and things in it. And so to get the stuff back out of this, this is tightly coupled and bundled in stuff and it's not a, an ore body where you can just put it into a smelter or whatever you can't just gross refine it so getting the stuff out of this is really really difficult and it takes energy to do it so once this phone dies and i stick it in the recycling facility uh, it takes energy it's got to be transported somebody's got to pull the thing apart and what a job that would be uh, and then there's, so there's machinery and so on. So energy is going into that process the whole time. Mm. So uh, where does that leave us, Jonathan? Uh, uh, growth is obviously an issue for us. Uh, what what else can we do? Yeah, so I think 
uh, it's clear from the message from limits to growth and our own current situation that we actually can't step away from this problem any longer. We have to address the fact that we are in what limits to growth would call overshoot, or to put it a different way, our human ecological footprint is way beyond what uh, the planet can sustain. So we need to move to a situation where we're within ecological limits, and that means um, certainly and particularly in wealthy economies like ours, moving back to within ecological limits. The reality is in poorer countries, they need to increase their level of consumption uh, to bring them up to decent lifestyles. But taken across the globe, we need to move back um, to, a, to a state we are, where we're no longer expanding and, in fact, are within ecological limits. And that requires us to move away from an economic growth priority. And, in fact, uh, is it towards what we would call degrowth? Look, um, there are challenges with the term degrowth, probably from a marketing sense. I mean, but my view is that, in fact, we will need to contract um, our total physical um, size of our economy over time. Uh, and degrowth is certainly one model which is particularly uh, high profile in Europe. Okay. Well, we might uh, break to a song now, give us a breather here on Fuzzy Logic, talking the steady state's economy, the impact of growth, where does it going to lead us? Now, uh, we discussed the issues with growth before the song break, uh, Jonathan. The question is uh, that I have in my mind, how do we get there? How do we transition to this? And I see two sides, and can you maybe talk to both? One is the technical side. How do we make an economy uh, transition smoothly without any uh, major disruption from the growth orientation towards a steady state one? And the second one is... Uh, how do we convince people, and you used the term marketing a moment ago, how do we convince people that it's a really good idea? Let's start off with the technical side. Yeah, look, uh, <laughs> there's no easy answers to this. Um, look, uh, while you have asked for the technical um, answers, the reality is that they're necessarily going to follow the social and political because it's going to be critical that society recognises that we need to move in this direction before we can move in this direction, and we're a long way from that. Um, there are actually, I guess, two paths by which we may get to uh, a steady-state economy. One is far less attractive, and that is it's foist upon us. Uh, on our current path, inevitably, unless we address uh, what our economy looks like, our economy will, in fact, collapse uh, sometime this century. So that is pretty unattractive. Um, so it'll be much better if we manage um, that change directly. Now, uh, some of the elements of moving to a steady-state economy um, may include reducing the amount of advertising to change the whole consumptive nature of our community and some of the drivers but also putting out um, a positive vision for what um, a steady-state economy looks like, which will probably mean uh, far more, probably working shorter hours. It may well also mean far more community uh, 
participation, more involvement in creative pursuits. I was really struck, actually, as a young ecologist when I worked in Kakadu as a seasonal ranger, that the anthropologists uh, told me that in pre-contact Kakadu society, um, the sort of physical work to deal with the material requirements of that society took about 15 to 20 hours a week. So for those of us thinking about working a 15, 20-hour week, it would be pretty attractive. So the rest of the time, um, as I understood, was dealing with family business, with, with cultural business. So moving to uh, less work may well be a very attractive um, approach. Uh, now, in terms of some of the more technical requirements, it may well mean uh, putting caps on the use of resources um, and I guess a model which is not too far removed from what we're familiar with is a cap and trade for the use of renewable and non-renewable resources um, and somehow uh, we need to make it more attractive um, to move to a stable population as well. These are all quite difficult topics, um, but they are going to be critical that we address them. So the, the cap and trade, let, we'll go back to your point about Kakadu, which I find fascinating. I'm really glad you said that. But uh, a cap and trade or, or some similar mechanism is about changing the the game, about changing the way the economy works and removing motivation to over-exploit. Is that a, a good summary? Yeah, so uh, it puts really quite clear constraints on the use of resources because a critical part of a steady-state economy is that the throughput of resources is steady and within ecological limits and as efficient as possible. So um, certainly one model, which is Herman Daly's model, who developed the steady-state economy, is to have... Uh, cap and trade if you like of resources now there's some contention around that as well but that's one model um, taking a broader view uh, to make things even slightly more challenging some people would argue that a capitalist model uh, of society particularly one dominated by large corporations uh, is inimical to uh, having a steady state economy. That's a discussion I, is, which is unresolved and people have different views, uh, partly depending on from what political perspective they come from. But other, other ideas are that, I guess, related to the capitalist model is that maybe we need to change, and this is a pretty dry topic, um, uh, our current um, model of banking where... Uh, banking flows are not necessarily backed by anything physical and maybe we would need to go back to having something physical backing capital uh, such as the so-called gold standard. Oh, oh there's so many, so many big topics you raised there, Jonathan. Uh, the, the money economy is this kind of abstract world. It's almost like an island universe mm. that's disconnected from reality. And, and I look at things like share markets and futures and derivatives and so on. And I'm no economist, but those things seem really, really weird. And the fact that they're, they're detached from the, the physical world, to, well, apparently detached, is just very strange. And you also you sort of imply there uh, the notion of corporate capture, uh, we, we, which is itself is a big topic, but how the wheels of government has, have been co-opted mm. by uh, influence of uh, money, uh, lobbyists and so on. 
just want to go back to though what you said about uh, Kakadu, and I thought that was fascinating. You, you said that a person living in a pre-colonial uh, society in Kakadu would need about 15 hours a week work or something like that? Yeah, that was as was told to me. Yeah. Um, so uh, that was to gather the, the physical requirements uh, for life, which I guess essentially was food and shelter. And that, of course, is a highly productive uh, ecology. Yeah, that's true. Well. It may have, would have varied across the landscapes in Australia. And I, I'm wondering what happened to the old thing that we used to hear that, you know, we went from the 40-hour week to the 35-hour mm. week and automation and everything was mean. We're all going to be sitting around enjoying and watching the football and, and playing golf. <laughs> what happened to that vision? <laughs> Yeah, well, and I guess a lot of this is tied up with just how we see ourselves as individuals in society. We we are creatures who are often drawn to status and consumption can be a very important indicator of status. So we're dealing with some pretty deep human characteristics which are quite hard to deal with in and and really exploited by advertising as you mentioned mm. you mentioned a moment ago yes well it really strikes me when i read the newspaper and there's a story about a drought in china emerging and there's floods in new zealand floods in australia fires and so on all these catastrophic environmental impacts and then you flip the page and there's uh, an electronics company selling you phones, buy more of this, buy more of that, and so on and so on. Uh, I don't know how do we, how do we counter that. Mm. <laughs> uh, I'm guessing there's no easy answer, right? No, but they're probably important things we will need to address over time. Yeah. And sooner rather than later. Yes, yes, and, and I think as you said in your comments a moment ago too, either we limit ourselves or nature will do it for us. Mm. If we do it ourselves, we might do it in a controlled manner, but if nature does it, it will be brutal. Mm. Yeah, I think that's right. And oh. particularly, and I guess the question there is that those who are poorer will typically be, have fewer resources to deal with those, those situations and will be struck harder, so there will be a double injustice in that sense. It will be disproportionate mm. effect, yes. Yes. Well, uh, that's all rather... Um, <laughs> are you optimistic, uh, Jonathan? Uh, I, I try to be realistic. Um, and I guess in terms of my own view is to try to have a sense, well, what's the best that we can do here? In terms of my own situation, what is... What is the contribution that I can make uh, in my remaining years on this planet? So I guess I tend to duck the question of hope um, and optimism. And I know that Joelle, Dr. Joelle Gerdicus has just put a book out in that regard about her own dealing with, as a climate scientist, dealing with the challenges of facing day-to-day -day, uh, where we're going. I haven't read the book, but I, uh, in an extract, she certainly said that she'd come to some basis of hope for herself. Um, so I think this is a pretty individual thing. It is. I, I like your answer, though, is that we do what we can as individuals, and no matter how difficult the situation is, the worst thing we could do is do nothing and give up. What's your... Amon, what's your take on that? How do you approach this yourself? Do you do you find it daunting? Does it does it worry you particularly? Well, I did. Right, it does. Well, I'm to some degree because it's kind of interesting. When I first studied 
uh, at the Australian National University. Well, actually, how long ago? Uh, 27 years now. Because um, I was actually looking at uh, things like sustainability, uh, um, environmental economics and ecological economics. Uh, and something which I found an interesting theory called, I think it's called contingent valuation, where I believe it's uh, where you're prepared to put a monetary price on a um, well, particular feature of the environment. Um, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Jonathan. Um, uh, for example, I mean, how would you put uh, pricing on people visiting, uh, well, ecologically sensitive areas? And w- would people be prepared to pay for that? I mean, uh, I'm certainly of the, agree- of the agreement that we still have the capacity to limit our, well, well, destructive habits on the appliance because uh, ourselves as a species are remarkably resilient and, and we have a capacity for creativity and finding solutions. And we are extremely adaptable. Now, you, you, you're pointing to a really interesting thing there, Amon, and uh, Jonathan, you might comment on this, that our measure of success of a government is, yes, that, those three letters, GDP. Do you want to talk about GDP and uh, alternatives? Yeah, look, um, Robert Kennedy, in the lead up to his 1968 uh, presidential election campaign, gave a famous and eloquent speech in which he said GDP um, basically measures nothing which is of importance to us. Um, and it is, I mean, look, the, the reality is that uh, Kuznets, who developed it uh, early in the 20th century, was at pains to say, don't use this as an indicator of social well-being. It's not. It is a good indicator of two things. One, the throughput uh, and size of a physical size of economy and of its environmental impacts. Now, look, there are a range of other measures um, which are probably better um, and have their own um, limitations as well. But I guess the reality, what we need to be clear about is that GDP is extremely closely related to the physical size of the economy, whereas a lot of people say we don't need to worry about GDP. The reality is it's very hard in the long term to uh, decouple the size of the the GDP from... um, from from the physical so that, size of the that, economy. That, that, so green growth is basically a myth. Green growth is, uh, yes, it's, it's. would you say that's one of the myths? And I've got to point out to our listener that uh, uh, Jonathan Miller here has a column coming up in next week's uh, Ask Fuzzy uh, in which you talk about what is sustainable and that kind of relates to what you're talking about now. So... Uh, <laughs> Uh, do you want to just go briefly into some of the other uh, measures? So there's a thing called the Genuine Progress Indicator. We're almost out of time yeah. now. Yeah, look, uh, some of these try to bring in, start with GDP and bring in a range of other measures. Look, uh, some of them um, have... There's the Genuine Progress Indicator. I think there's about nine or ten. Um, there's the ISEW, who's... Uh, uh, I can't actually bring to mind uh, what it, it stands for. Um, look, there are different ways of going in terms of bringing in a range of separate indicators. That's what the ACT government is doing and potentially 
even the federal government under Chalmers will do is to bring in other wellbeing indicators. So GDP doesn't become the sole target of government policy so much as trying to improve a range of social and hopefully environmental indicators as well. Well, that's that's a good thought, I think, in which to to end our interview. Did you have something you wanted to well, add? Well, actually, Rod, uh, perhaps just if I could help uh, wrap up uh, today's show, I have a few interesting dates in science history, uh, which might be of interest. Um, I am mindful of our time, but uh, perhaps I'll be as very quick as I can. Yes, we need to have a few dates in science history. Over the past week, on the 27th of August, 1859, petroleum was discovered in Titusville in Pennsylvania, leading to the world's first commercially successful oil well. On the day in 1983, the eruption of Krakatoa, four enormous explosions almost completely destroyed the island of Krakatoa and caused years of climate change. On the 27th of August, 1939, the first flight of the turbojet-powered Heinkel 178, the world's first jet aircraft. On the day 1956, the nuclear power station at Calder Hall in the United Kingdom was connected to the national power grid, becoming the world's first commercial nuclear power station to generate electricity on an industrial scale. On the 26th of August, 1768, Captain James Cook set sail from England on board HMS Endeavour on the first uh, voyage of discovery. On the 26th of August, 1932, Amelia Earhart became the first woman to fly across the United States non-stop from Los Angeles to Newark, New Jersey. And on the 23rd of August, 1991, the World Wide Web was opened to the public. Oh, thank you, Amon. And something relevant to our conversation, I notice. <laughs> and... And also, very quickly, I'm mindful this is also the last weekend of winter, and I do believe National Wattle Day will be on Thursday, which is the 1st of September. Bring on, bring on those beautiful wattles. Now, today's Ask Fuzzy column is about the computer that they carried aboard the lunar module on its oh, landing. And uh, it's pretty funny given, uh, well, the primitive nature of the computers back then. Uh, it's quite an interesting story in a thing called rope men- memory. Oh, which is, I can see my quizzical look here from Jonathan. Uh, rope memory is a uh, uh, iron core, ferrite core, uh, little rings of iron with cables running through them, and each one represented one binary digit, one bit. There you go, and the thing weighed about 32 kilograms, and uh, of course it'd be laughable by today's standard. I think that's time for a wrap. And uh, good on you, Jonathan Miller. Thank you very much for your time today. We look forward to seeing your column next week in uh, Ask Fuzzy. Thanks, Ron. Much appreciated. And good on you, Amon. And uh, I'm back uh, in a month's time, uh, and I'll leave it in your capable hands and the rest of Team Fuzzy. That's something uh, we all look forward to. Uh, Indeed, I'll be having a, a couple of weeks away soon, so I'm looking forward to some serious time and distance away from the ACT. Good on you. Catch you later.